Well, good morning. Should we all get up and do some jumping jacks right now? What do we, what do we think? Get some, uh, some blood flowing? Well, I'm glad that you're here. And I'm glad uh, for those who are watching online, and if you were just home and under a blanket on your couch watching, uh, you're still missing out uh, by, by not being here. But we're glad you're tuning in anyway. So let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to Galatians chapter 1. It's page 972 in the Blue Pew Bible, if you want to follow along with us there. But in the early 1990s, there was a media executive. His name was Ken Lowe. He worked for the Scripps Company. And Ken had this idea of a new cable television channel. But he had little to no support of those around him to get it off the ground. Yet, Ken kept at it for years, lobbying uh, investors, lobbying executives within his own company to just give this idea a shot. Acknowledging it was far-fetched, but he just had this kind of gut feeling that it would work. So finally, on December 30th, 1994, the channel launched with a name that at the time was widely mocked. And the channel was called the Home, Lawn, and Garden Channel. For short, maybe because they were being mocked at the long, weird name, they simply called it HGTV. And not only did Ken's idea work, but now, 28 years later, the whole programming vision basically remains unchanged. The vision is to broadcast the buying, the selling, and the remodeling of homes and estates. And now again, almost 30 years later, HGTV is among the most highly watched cable channels in the world. Tens of millions of people tuning in every night to watch shows like Love It or List It, Property Brothers... House Hunters, and the most popular, Fixer Upper, with Chip and Joanna Gaines. Amen to that. Why are these shows so popular? Why do they have such lasting value with pretty much the same programming vision all these years later, when everything else in the world that seems to have changed since the early 90s? Why is HGTV still this must-watch TV for so many? I, I want to venture one opinion as to why especially the renovation shows resonate, in that it really kind of uh, speaks to their ability to satisfy our innate love and our innate desire to see before and after transformation. Think about it, most of these shows are half hour. You take out commercials, you're talking about 22 minutes of content, and every show is the exact same. Before you see the house and kind of beforehand and the personality of the people kind of walking through it, some footage. And then there's, you know, montages of footage of, of, of just work being done, just normal construction work. But they, you know, get the angles and people are just nailing shingles or laying countertops or doing demo. And then each show at some point in the middle has these dramatic decisions that they have to make. And it's always an unexpected cost or a part of the plan that was foiled because there's asbestos in the ceiling, or there's an unforeseen plumbing issue, and it's really just normal, run-of-the-mill decisions, but they do a great job at sucking you into it like it's the end of the world. Now, you're just sitting on your couch watching a show, and you're like, oh my gosh, they can't do the fireplace now. It's going to be over budget. They're going to have to paint it. They can't tile it. Or you find yourself saying, like, oh, man, the half bathroom in the basement is going to be a great half bathroom, and they can't do it. There's a plumbing issue. It won't connect to the main sewer line, babe. It won't connect. They can only have three bathrooms, not three and a half. The agony. 
that they suck you in. But you get to the end, and I'm convinced it's the most popular part of the show. It's 30 seconds, maybe, of video shots of before and after. And it's always the last minute, so you have to wait to the very end to get there to see the payoff. You invest any time in this show, you got to wait to the end. That's why the ratings are so high. And I know personally, I, I'm, I'm kind of, you know, Rochelle will like often watching the shows and, and, and I'll be like, I, I don't watch those shows, right? So there was one night, actually just a couple of weeks ago, um, I w- you know, she was watching one, like Love It or List It, I think, and I was reading on the couch because again, I don't watch that. I'm redeeming my time and I'm reading. But I'm peeking up at the show as it goes on, the normal plot line. And then during a commercial, towards the end, Rochelle goes to another channel and she doesn't go back. And I'm sitting there, and now I have a dilemma, like physically feeling pain. I couldn't just like keep it in. I needed to see that before and after, so I go, um, hey, uh, babe, are you going to go back? And she does not let me off the hook for a second. She looks back, goes, oh, you were watching that. I thought you were reading back there, because you don't watch these shows. And I just had to kind of push through that. Yeah, yeah, just go back. I need to see the end. We've invested this time. I need the payoff. And that's the moment I understood this chan- why this channel is so popular. We love seeing the before and the after. We love seeing renewal and beauty before our eyes. Why? Why is there something in us that is drawn to that? This morning in Galatians, we're going to cover one verse. It's the only time in our series in Galatians that we're going to cover one verse, unless the Lord has different plans down the road. But it's a verse that once you dig into it, it speaks to inner transformation of the human soul that leads to an outwardly changed life, and one aspect in particular that we're going to zero in on. So, let's open up those Bibles, or you can follow along on the screen. Galatians 1. Verse 10. Paul, if you remember, just talked about the centrality of the gospel alone, that that is the only message. And then he says this, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. One verse. And this verse serves as a transition in Paul's letter. It is the doorway, it is the threshold that connects the message and the messenger. Again, verses six through nine last week that we covered talked about the centrality of the message. And then the passage that comes after that we will, Lord willing, cover next week in verses 11 to 24, we'll talk about the authority of the messenger. But here in verse 10, Paul is defending himself. Paul is standing up for himself against an accusation that made its way back to him, compelling him, at least one of the reasons, for him to sit down and write this letter. Well, what was the accusation? It seems that those who were peddling a false gospel in Galatia were then slandering Paul to undercut his message of salvation, the message of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, Again, if you listened last week, if you were here last week, you recall that the false gospel that was especially prominent in Galatia was was Jesus plus. That yes, belief in Jesus, but plus something else, plus some works of the law for salvation. 
Specifically, there were Jewish men called Judaizers who were saying that in order for the Gentiles, who were the kind of non-Jewish believers in the church, in order for them to become Christians fully, they had to believe in Jesus and adhere to Jewish law and customs like circumcision and some of the uh, spiritual days throughout the year. And they told the Gentile believers in Galatia that the only reason Paul did not tell you about that, the only reason why Paul is not adding that to his aspect of salvation, his gospel proclamation, is because he's trying to please you. He's just currying favor with you because he elevates himself in the process to make his ministry look successful. Everyone wants successful ministry. And so if he kind of shortened the aspects of the gospel, he'll raise his own numbers and this makes Paul look good. He's trying to please you. So Paul asks pretty early on in the letter, am I just seeking the approval of man? No. Because if I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. That's a massive statement in your Bible. It is incompatible to take the two together. And so in doing so, Paul says that there's two ways to live in this world. There's only two either for the glory of self or for the glory of God. I saw a post this past week of of someone criticizing the obsession people have to break everyone in, in the world into two groups. And to make the point, the person said, there's two kinds of people in this world, the kind who puts everyone into two groups and everyone else. I get that point, but even so, the Bible, I think, pretty clearly does reveal that in the history of mankind, there are two groups. There are those who are of the world who live to please people for the glory of self. And there are those who are of Christ who live to serve Christ to the glory of God. That's the whole point of verse 10. And I think a message that um, I just, in, in my heart's desire, I just want to just, just spotlight this verse and this point for us this morning to display the transformation that takes place from living to please others to living to the glory of God. I want to see how it happens, number one. Number two, what's it feel like? And then finally, number three, practically, what's it look like? So that's where we're going this morning. Number one, how transformation happens. The key word in verse 10 is the word still. If you're somebody who writes in your Bible or highlight on your app, Underline the word still in verse 10. If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul freely acknowledges that his former life was defined by trying to please man. He's not denying that. And we're going to dig more into Paul's story next week, but Paul was upper class, man. Like he was upper class of Judaism of the day, highly trained, rubbing shoulders of the most influential people within the Jewish leadership, um, really in the capital of Jerusalem. He's with who he needed to be, where he needed to be. He was on a fast track to the top. So Paul is saying, and I think this is pretty convincing, at least it is to me, that he's writing to these Judaizers And and this church is being led by a false gospel. He said, if my primary motivation was just to please man, I was there. I would have stayed where I was. I would not have been. I would not be a servant of Christ. In doing so, he reveals that the natural state of man is to live in a way that pleases others 
not for their sake, but for our sake. To live to please others for approval for our glory. We would never say that in our natural state. We know better than that, to make it sound a little bit better. But ultimately, when others approve of us and are pleased of us, that raises our stock. That's everyone's natural state. And the way that might look in our lives is different for everyone. The angle we pursue to make that happen is based on our context and our giftings and our desires. But you keep peeling the onion back on us all. At To our core, our fallen nature, there's this desire to prop ourselves up through the affirmation, praise, and approval of others. And this is the state of the home in our soul. If I can just keep carrying this HG illustration all the way through the sermon. Whether you were born in a religious family, in a a church that by God's grace preached the gospel, or whether you were born in a secular family that never spoke of God or the gospel. Whether you grew up in Poughkeepsie, New York, or Papua New Guinea, there is no person who naturally lives for the glory of God. I have a question. Um, have you ever wondered what it would have been like to grow up somewhere else? In a different place? In a different family? A different culture altogether? A different demographic? I know for those who grew up with a lot of trauma, this is not a hypothetical thinking exercise. You've spent a lot of your life thinking about what it would have been like to be somewhere else with other people. Maybe you struggle with why were those the cards you were given. Perhaps you're way on the other side of the spectrum and there's almost a feeling of guilt for how you grew up with the ideal life, whatever ideal might mean. But why did you get so lucky? Why did you get parents that were so loving? Why haven't you faced more struggles that you see so many others facing? Have you ever wondered what it would have been like to grow up another way? What if we had a different home of the soul than we have? What would things be like? I acknowledge that the impact uh, of our story, how that still plays out in our lives in shaping us, no matter what figurative home you had, But what would always be true is that no matter what that upbringing would have or could have looked like, it would need complete soul renovation by the grace of God. As preacher H.B. Charles once said, your past may explain you, but it doesn't excuse you. The will of the Father for all those who are made in his image is the same, and it's the message that he began his letter with, and the message is grace to you. His will is that you would be freed from the bondage of living for the approval of others. Freed from the bondage of sin that trades in God's glory for the glory of self. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says on this, No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And if you remember the context, the, the phrase after that, he said, no one can serve both God and money. So he's speaking specifically about kind of this financial treasuring and greed that's in, often in our hearts. But, but the, the bigger point is that no one can have two gods. And likewise, I think Paul is saying here, you can't have two primary motivations in your life. You can't have two foundations for the same house. Either it's going to be a foundation that lives for the glory of other and craves, or glory of self that craves the approval from others, 
or it's going to be a foundation that lives as a servant of Christ for the glory of God. And to live for the approval of others is bondage. It is to live a life while you are trapped. And while the bad news is that for everyone, left to their own flesh, will choose self-glory, the good news of the gospel is that there is more grace in him than sin in us. And when we speak of salvation, when we use that language of being saved, we're not talking about how God helped us get our act together. That's not what salvation is. Friends, if you're watching or here this morning and you're not a Christian, I want you to know clearly that when we talk about being a Christian, we're not first talking about what we do for God, but we first talk about what Christ has done for us. Grace to you. As Paul writes in his letter to the Ephesians, it is by grace we have been saved through faith. And this is not our own doing. He says, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. To say you believe in Jesus is not defined by that you're just more moral than you used to be or that you started going to church or, or that you cleaned your life up. It's defined by a transformation that happened from the inside out. I was dead in sin. And now because Christ endured the cross, I'm alive in him. And because he was raised from the dead, showing that that sin was paid for in full, I'm raised with him. And because that's true, I'm living for him. Paul says, if I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. But I've been transformed. That foundation was replaced. That's how it happens. Let's go to number two. What transformation feels like. We're going to get practical in this sermon. We're going to talk about what it might look like, but I don't want to rush there. I want to first talk about what does transformation feel like. A major emphasis in this letter that I want to show throughout the series in Galatians is that grace is not just something to know about. Grace is not just something to define. Grace is meant to be experienced. And I think so many Christians rob themselves of the ability to live in the freedom of grace and not just be able to talk about grace. It's here where the question turns, of, turns from, do you know what grace is? To, do you know what grace does? Do you know what it feels like to live in and out of that freedom of grace? And so there's some evaluation of our own hearts that I think Paul is welcoming us and ushering us into by the Holy Spirit. That verse 10 gives us this kind of tangible litmus test to evaluate our own hearts. That the extent to which you are experiencing God's grace is directly related to how little you are controlled by the approval of others. Can I say that again? That the extent to which you know that you are experiencing and living out the experience of grace is directly correlated to how little you are controlled by the approval of others. And again, I'll get into this a little, in a little bit, but none of us are completely free from this. Like, I, I can't with any good conscience stand up here and say, I care about nothing of the approval of others. That, that there's a sense where we are always kind of waging some kind of war against the flesh and that desire that's always there. It's our natural state. 
And that's going to be there. That, that, that battle's going to exist until the day when God completes his, his work in us in glory. But the more we lean deeply into the freedom of his grace, the more we feel fully alive in Christ, the less we are prone to be controlled by the opinion and praise of others. So there's a difference of struggling with it and just being completely controlled by it. And my concern that I see spike in my life at times, and I see in the lives of so many believers, is that while they believe in Jesus, they have the Holy Spirit in them, and yet instead of experiencing and living out of that power of the Spirit and being known by God, they instead remain in the very shackles of seeking self-glory and horrifically sometimes even using religious language and activity to get that self-glory and that praise of man, that they're living in those shackles that the Lord has delivered them from. In 2018, um, Harvard published the results of a study that contained 70 years of data, 7-0. The study began after World War II, and the aim was to determine how parenting style impacts the flourishing of children, not only in their childhood, but over the course of their lives. And the primary takeaway from this 70-year-old study was that the biggest impact parents have in their child's well-being and long-term flourishing is not money, it's not even teaching skills and imparting wisdom, or passing on a moral code. But the biggest impact in the flourishing of their children was ensuring their kids that they know they are loved, cared for, and known. So in the study, time together was more valuable than money. Physical and emotional presence more vital than valuable gifts and exotic trips. And giving affection more impactful than life lessons. And it's just one of those cases where I love it when science catches up to what God's Word has been saying all along. Right? A life of flourishing and is being rooted, is rooted in being loved and known and not having to perform in order to get it. And again, as we all look back on our own story and our upbringing, some maybe are grateful that that was your experience. Others may lament that this was nothing, that was nothing of your experience with your parents. Maybe a lot or somewhere in between. And yet, no matter your story in the past, once again, Grace abounds. And in Christ, it is a special grace to walk in the confidence and shadow of God's love for you. That before he has a list of things you need to do for him, before he wants to teach you the ins and outs and wisdom of life, and that is important, that's in there, and you'll find that in the word, but that is well behind his primary intention for you in your life, and that is for you to know that you were known, loved, and cared for by him. Do you know this is available to you? The desire to live for the approval of others is rooted in a fear of man. But the experience of living in freedom is rooted in faith in Christ. I'm serious. Do you know that this is available for you? Do you know that you can be freed from a crippling anxiety of having to please others? Or maybe even having to please yourself? Many times we are our harshest critics. 
we beat ourselves up more than anyone else does. Because we want some sense of approval of ourselves, but if you even peel that onion back, that's even rooted in that your perception of yourself is often dictated by what you perceive others think about you. But love conquers fear. It's not duty, it's not discipline, it's not self-power, even if those things have their rightful place. But it's love that leads to freedom, not bondage. This is what the transformation by grace feels like. And then third, what transformation looks like. I I don't want to move past, again, this passage without taking some time to kind of paint a picture of what this can actually look like in the lives of believers today, to, to understand the theology of how it happens, to understand the affections of what it feels like, but then what does this look like? How can it look in your life? So I want to start a process of applying this, that in God's wisdom and by His Spirit, that you're going to have to carry forward yourselves. Because again, here's the danger of a message like this. It's one you've probably, many of you have heard before. If you've been around in church, the message of living for Christ and not for man is something you've heard hundreds of times. Maybe you've taught it yourself to, to kids, to, to, to a spouse, to, to a grace group or a class. Live for Christ, not for a man. But deep down, perhaps there are struggles in this very realm that you've faced, that you know you've always faced, that have always been there. And maybe you've gotten to the point where you think they're just going to be there no matter what. There's no victory over them. So my encouragement as we go through just a short, probably too short of a list of how this can look in your life is to encourage you that there's no transformation without repetition. There's no such thing as transformation without repetition. It does not happen overnight. That that God saves you in his moment by his grace, but then that puts you on a journey of being increasingly transformed and grown and matured, and that happens over the long haul. And it's a commitment to repetition. So here's what I want to do. I want, I want to paint a picture, cast a vision for us of what it looks like to live a life for the glory of God that, that, that you can, again, carry forward. So if you can hang with me with this illustration, if I kind of outline it for you in black and white, it's going to be up to you to color it in. Now, I boiled it down to five things that, li- that help paint what it looks like to live for the glory of God. It's an imperfect list, probably too short of a list, but that's at least we'll get us started. Number one, you are encouraged but not controlled by approval. Encouraged but not controlled by approval. God created us as embodied emotional beings. We feel joy when others affirm us. A loved one, even a stranger, someone on the internet affirms us. That feels good. We might even feel some sense of joy when somebody constructively critiques us. If we know they love us and they want what's best for us and they provide some advice, some critique, we enjoy that. It actually makes us feel good. And conversely, we feel bad when others tear us down. Even if it's kind of wild criticism that we just want to dismiss, like we can't, right? You can hear 10 good things in one day and one bad thing. What are you thinking about when you go to bed at night? It's that one thing that just kind of, just kind of can marinate in you. Like God, is, like God has created us as emotional beings. We're not to just kind of put away feelings altogether. No one hates a compliment. And no one enjoys a criticism. 
And it's true and even right to respond with emotions and be honest about them. In fact, on the positive side, God uses the encouragement of believers to other believers as a means of grace to help you make it to the end. Hebrews 10, 24, 25, let us stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The the wrong application of this message is to say that you don't need others. That's not true. Very much need each other because we need that encouragement from others. But here's what it means. It means that our foundational motivation is not dominated by the approval of others. And that's nuanced, but it's so vital. I know I need encouragement, but I know, and that can be a a murky line that you could cross relatively easily that now I'm dominated by getting that encouragement from others. And so some honest reflection here. Again, I'm outlining. I need you to color it in. How controlled are you by the approval of others? Take stock of the things you do, the things you say, the things you think. How often is that determined by how you think others are going to respond to that? Or is it determined primarily by how God has shaped you and the truth he has put in your heart? That's number one, encouraged but not controlled by approval. Number two, work first for the Lord, not others. Work first for the Lord, not others. The reality is the majority of our waking hours are spent working. Whether that is in a specific vocation or field or not, regardless of whether or not you receive a paycheck, the majority of our waking hours in this world is spent working. And so there is no area of our lives where we are tempted to define ourselves more than by our work, especially in our area. And so therefore, there's no area that we are tempted to compromise our faith-based convictions in order to gain approval or wealth than in the area of work. And so we are called to work hard, we're called to work skillfully and with integrity, uh, not to gain approval, but because we're submitted to the Lord. I think that Christians who are most submitted to the Lord are actually going to work the hardest. But we're going to rest the best because we know we're working to the Lord and not for others. We're going to work with the most integrity, not to gain praise, but because that has God how, that's how God has wired us. Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, work heartily. It means work emphatically. As for the Lord and not for men. You're going to wake up tomorrow, you're going to go to work by God's grace. He's giving you a job to go to, whether that's in the home, whether that's out in the field. Ask yourself, am I doing this for the Lord? Is my primary motivation here for the Lord? You've got to color it in. Uh, There's a Puritan named Joseph Aline who wrote in this little book called A Sure Guide to Heaven. He wrote this in 1671. Listen to this. He says, the new man takes a new course. Though sin may dwell in him, truly a wearisome and unwelcome guest, it has no more dominion over him. Listen, he is not one man at church and another at home. He is not a saint on his knees and a cheat in his shop. Work first for the Lord, not others. Number three, prioritize elevating others 
not yourself. Prioritize elevating others, not yourself. Uh, One practical benefit of not being consumed by the approval of man is that when you interact with others, you're not focused on getting something from them. You're free to consider what you can do for them. So let me just use myself as an example. Um, If as a pastor, if I am controlled by the desire to please people and to get approval from the people I pastor, then everything I do will be done with motivation of what will get me the most praise. It will affect all my interactions, my emails, my texts, my sermons, my, my staff meetings. Everything I do, I will orient around a certain way to say what will get me the most approval and the most praise, especially uh, if I can do it as a pastor and do it in religious language. But if I feel like I am leading by a conviction of the Holy Spirit, if I feel like I'm leading of a conviction of how can I build people up, how can I elevate others, how can I pour into them, how can I see God made manifest in them, how can I help them feel most alive in Christ, how can I be used by God to do that for them and to them, then I will not shrink back from saying what needs to be said. I will hopefully be abounding in encouragement and perseverance and steadfastness. And I will be thinking about the Lord more than myself. Further, if I'm hesitant to affirm others in my field or in my life, if you are hesitant to encourage and affirm and and encourage others, um, that is often because we see others as a threat. And if we elevate others, then we're not being elevated. So if I'm just kind of quiet with my encouragement and building up, then I'm the one who rises to the top. But if, but if I don't care about that, if I'm not worth thinking about just elevating myself, and I'm going to be um, uh, open and, and, and liberal and, and as, as, as willing and, and opportunistic as I can to affirm and encourage and elevate men and women in this ministry for the glory of God. Because by doing so, our church will learn from and be built up by their giftings and not just mine. And here's how insidious this is. This is how tricky it is. Me even saying this right now could get praise from others. Like, this is how backwards it can get. Like, I I know it sounds humble. I know it sounds good. And yet behind it all, what's the primary motivation, man? It's tricky. Our hearts are deceitful. We need God in his spirit. It's our only chance for him to keep us on the path here. So as a church even, as we think about what our calling as a church is together, not just individuals, we are free to work towards justice and for people in our faith community and outside of our community. We're free to partner with others to serve and build up those others outside of these walls because we're not just thinking about what's good for Grace Church. And we can see our gifts, our spiritual gifts, our financial gifts, our time as blessings to pour into and elevate others. All right, two more. Number four. Fourth way in a life that seeks for the glory of God and not the glory of self. This one's a little nuanced. Hang with me. Number four. Practice addressing hypocrisy, not avoidance. Practice addressing hypocrisy, not avoidance. 
I know I'm in the weeds now, but oftentimes Christians and churches will be quiet in the face of injustice out of a fear of rocking the boat or causing confrontation. And so we will hide behind a culture of grace in order to just not say anything. And we very much want a culture of grace, right? Grace to you. We want that to define us. But a culture of grace does not knowingly stand by as others are sinned against. Tomorrow's Martin Luther King Day. Martin Luther King spoke up about the injustice and, of racism and, and segregation and his famous letter from a Birmingham jail. I probably recommend that every year, but if you have the time, take a half hour to read his letter from a Birmingham jail tomorrow. His biggest frustrations and heartache was not the racists who put him into jail, but it was with primarily the pastors in Birmingham who were privately supporting him, but publicly silent in the face of injustice out of fear. So yes, we want a culture of grace. Yes, we should take the log out of our own eye before taking the speck out of our brother's eye. But Jesus never said, don't take the speck out of your brother's eye. He just said, make sure your own eyes are clear first. Unfortunately, there are all too many times where I know I have stayed quiet in the face of sin out of fear, not grace. And I've stayed quiet as to not rock the boat and continue getting approval. And hear me, it always comes back. It never goes away. That issue, whatever it is, always reappears. A life glorifying to God is willing to call out hypocrisy that we see when it's out of step with the gospel. And then last, number five. Living as a servant of Christ is to endure the cross with joy, not fear. To endure the cross with joy, not fear. The first time followers of Christ were called Christians was in the city of Antioch. It's in Acts chapter 11. But the early church over the next several hundred years, for the most part, uh, they initially referred to themselves as saints. Even in the New Testament, they referred to each other as saints more than Christians. Christians is only mentioned three times in the entire New Testament. And historical accounts say that the word Christians grew in prominence in the Roman Empire because it was seen as an insult. Christians literally meant little Christs. You are little Christs. And it was seen as derogatory because Christ was humiliated through death on a cross. And so you're little followers of a man who was humiliated. You're following in the footsteps of someone who had a shameful ending in the eyes of the world. And yet, unbeknownst to them, the church embraced this title with joy. Little Christs, those who were willing to carry their cross and follow Jesus. When all is said and done, the transformed life may very well be a hard life, but it is a path that is fortified by the Holy Spirit who will enable you to walk it with joy in Christ. When success in this world is our goal, that's not freedom in Christ. But when we die to self, when we live as little Christs, it leads to joy. There's true beauty in transformation. So the next time you're flipping channels and you land on a renovation show on HGTV, 
and you get sucked in because you know you want to get to the end to see the payoff, the video montage of transformation, let it be a reminder to you each night when you lay your head on your pillow and you rest in the Lord that by God's grace you will make it to the end of this life. And by God's grace, you will hear the words of transformation, the words of your God saying, well done, good and faithful servant. That's worth waiting for. Let's pray. As we prepare to respond in singing together, I just ask everyone with just your bows, your, your heads bowed and eyes closed, Lord, that we would just take a moment and ask the Spirit to impress on us, to bring us to mind of where we need to surrender in this realm that we've talked about. Where are you held by the bondage of living for the desire and approval of others? We know it's so easy to hear a word, maybe get convicted, and then just get lost in the hustle and bustle of life. But just right now, ask the Lord to reveal an area of your life where you know you struggle with this. Maybe you know right away. Maybe there are multiple. Maybe this is an area you have stuffed so deep down, and maybe this is the first time in a long time, or maybe ever you're admitting it. I ask you to allow it to happen. Allow the Spirit to expose this in you. Father, we come before you humbly. Father, we come before you, those of us who have placed our faith and trust in you. We know we are imperfect. We know, Lord, that sin remains. And Father, we also know and speak the powerful truth this morning that you have given us dominion over sin. That you have allowed us to be conquerors in Christ and there's no condemnation for those who are in you. And so, Father, I pray that you would allow us, give us the grace to surrender this to you. Father, give us the grace to see it nailed to the cross, to understand your love for us, and Father, with these hands that we release this and are released from these shackles, Lord, I pray that we would receive the grace that will empower us. A grace that says we are fully loved, fully known, fully empowered to live as your servant. And Father, if there's anyone here or listening or watching who has not yet put their faith and trust in you, Lord, I pray that your spirit would come upon them now to show them the freedom of forgiveness in you, to know that it is in Christ alone that our salvation is found. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.